0: Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. So, good morning. Good morning, Harvest. I just want to start out by saying I, I recognize that Advent might be a newer term for for some of us. But surely the practice of waiting on Christ is not new. That is common to the Christian experience. I mean, as, as as Pastor Peter shared, Advent simply means arrival. And it's the arrival of Jesus, his coming. Presently, we live in between Jesus' two arrivals. At just the right time, Christ came as a humble babe in the little town of Bethlehem. And we set our hope on Christ coming again. Today is one day closer to Christ's return. One day closer to God completing everything that he has set out to do. In Isaiah, we've been talking about this great city of light and people being clothed in righteousness and our assured victory. Jesus is working toward that end, even now. And so before Christ's first advent, you had 400 years of silence between the close of the Old Testament writings and the birth of Jesus. 400 years without a prophetic voice to speak to the people. That's a lot of waiting. That's a long time to build up habits of complacency. And so think of Advent as as this invitation to wake up, to remember. I had a youth pastor who once told me that he prays for Jesus to return in his generation. And as a teenager, I was skeptical of that. I thought, you really believe that? I'm not sure I believe that. It doesn't feel like Jesus is coming soon. But now, 20 years later, More and more, I find my heart crying out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. I long for it. Don't you? And so inherent in this season leading up to Christmas is a call to wait. It's a call to prepare our hearts for Christ's coming. It's a call to seek the voice of God and to anticipate the activity of God because we need him to come down again. In Isaiah 64, the the prophet is forecasting the post-exile ruins of Jerusalem. And it was a reminder that the physical world is decaying. People are wearing out. Our moral fortitude is waning. And there's nothing we can really do to stop it. No wonder Isaiah's only resolve is to pray. God be merciful to sinners like us. We need divine intervention in our day. Thank God Isaiah supplies us with the words to say. And so the flow of our passage this morning follows like this. Our longing for God's presence, our lamentable condition, and our cry for God's unrestrained love. And if that's too wordy for you, then just remember longing, lament, love. Longing, lament, love. So starting in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Did you know that 80% of the world's ocean has never been mapped, explored, or even seen by human eyes. 80%. According to National Geographic, scientists estimate that more than 90% of the ocean species are still undiscovered. I mean, we know more about the surfaces of the moon and the planet Mars than we do about the ocean floor of the planet Earth. And even despite what little we know, oceanographers have made some remarkable discoveries. I mean, take, for example, that the largest mountain peak in the world, Mount Everest in the Himalayas, measured at just under nine kilometers high, would not even break the surface of the water if it was placed in the Philippine Trench, just off the northwest coast of the Philippines. That the ocean floor is so deep that it would swallow up our highest mountain peaks. Isn't that amazing? I mean, does that, does that just, like when you think about it, does that not boggle your mind? The, the vast mysterious nature of our planet. I mean, we, we think we're so smart. We think we've got all this stuff figured out. 90% of the ocean's species. I mean, we're talking about maybe hundreds of thousands, millions. We don't even know about. And I mention all of this just to give you perspective. To scale for size. So that when you hear the heavens rending and the mountains quaking and the people trembling, you recognize the magnitude of the ask. Because fitting Everest into the Pacific would be a smaller task than asking the God who created all things to descend his holy habitation. When we reach for the heavens, God looks down and laughs at our arrogance. But the notion that God would come down to us, the other great religions of the world scoff, it's a stumbling block. Nothing sounds more impossible or implausible in all the earth. We could discover all the creatures of the sea, but it wouldn't even compare to the wonders of God coming down to his people. That's why Isaiah uses such grandiose imagery. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. You can hear the passion in his cry. But why? What's he crying out for? Why does he need God to come down? Do you ever look back on past events and weigh other potential outcomes? Like if I, if I had just done this, or if this had just happened this way, things would be different. Maybe even I would be different. And my grandfather passed away when I was about 10. He was in his 60s, relatively young. I I sometimes wonder if that side of the family would have fallen apart like they did. If he were still around. But things have been different. I think they could have been different. Isaiah is saying, oh, God, if you had been with us, if you had just come down, if if Israel had experienced divine intervention, we wouldn't have experienced this exile. The the outcomes would have been so different. Would we have been removed from the land? Would we see the ruffles of, of our country, of our places of worship? Just look at us. Look at what we've become. And we know God disciplines those he loves. And, and in his righteous anger, he will allow us to experience the consequences of sin. And maybe there is sin in your life right now that you are more inclined to build culture around than you are to put to death. Maybe you think, how can I prop this up in the dark rather than how can I drag this into the light and experience the freedom of Christ? Oh, that you would long for the presence of God in your life. That he would tear open the heavens. That you would feel the ground beneath your feet shake at the approach of his divine concern. The presence of God, it will shake you. It will change you. In the presence of God, you find his humility and his grandiosity all at once. college, Barack Obama came to visit my university. The, the president of the United States has a large footprint. Now, I, got, I, I never got anywhere close to him, but you felt his sheer presence all around the campus by just the, the excitement of the people around you and also the, the number of armed security outfitted around, around the campus. I mean, you saw, you saw armed men On rooftops, okay, like you, you felt, you felt the presence around you. It was, it was a different feel. But even that, even that is small. In comparison, to encountering the presence of God, being in the presence of God, it's it's never as simple and basic as we think it is. The scripture tells us it's like encountering a burning bush. It's like in the midst of hurricane-like winds, still hearing the gentle whisper. Or put it like this. The the book of Exodus records it this way. Simultaneously, as Moses is up on the mountain, Lord, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In the Lord, you get the humility and the grandiosity of God. You get the love and the just wrath of God. God has no interest in us putting him in our little boxes. He doesn't need us to understand him. But know this. God is consistent. He will be exactly who he says he is. But God being consistent doesn't mean that God is predictable. And Pastor Peter likes to tease me because when we go get coffee, I always order the same thing. I'm predictable. But God, he's consistent. But he's full of surprises. I mean, just look at verse 3. It says, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. God's work in the past teaches us that we can't box him in. He does things we're not looking for. And he's never at a loss for new ways to rescue us. I mean, just look at what he did through Abraham. God came down to Abraham and promised him that through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. He said, you will have more descendants in the faith than there are stars in the skies to count. Now, how is barren Sarah, in her old age, going to have a child? But God gave them the child of laughter. Because Sarah was changed from one who laughs at God to one who rejoices in God. Nobody expected that. Or look at the Exodus. Israel has their backs against the wall. The Egyptians are coming for them. Literally nowhere to go. The, the, the people are in panic. And Moses says to them in Exodus fourteen fourteen. the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. God parts the sea. Nobody expected that. When God comes down, he changes things. He changes us. Listen, God's work in the past doesn't show us that he's predictable. It shows us that he's faithful. And God's faithfulness will surprise you. I mean, three times Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and die, and it's as if they never saw it coming. But it's in the presence of God that we find that what's impossible for man is being made possible for God. It's possible with him. Salvation is possible through him. So when Isaiah appeals to the awesome things that we did not look for, he's talking about Things too wonderful for human imagination. God does things we couldn't have dreamed of. But we have hope because Isaiah tells us when God comes down, he acts for those who wait for him. He welcomes those who remember his ways. And what are the ways of God? Well, the ways of God can be summarized like this. He works, we wait. He works, we wait. No one leaves the presence of God unchanged. When you apply fire to wood, it burns. When you apply fire to a pot of water, it boils. When you apply the presence of God to sinful people, you either get chastised or you get convicted. And conviction leads to repentance and cleansing. Conviction is the spirit-empowered road to change. And our job is to joyfully and expectantly prepare our hearts to receive Christ's work to put the wood to our hearts and ask God to supply the flame. Listen, waiting on God, it's not a passive activity. Waiting is active, it's preparatory. Like expectant parents prepare for the birth of a newborn child, you build the crib, you get the car seat, the diaper bag, the clothes, the birthing classes, you do all the things. So do hopeful sinners expect the Spirit of God to birth the righteousness of Christ in their lives. When you long for Christ's presence in your life, you study the Word. You pray for conviction. You gather with the saints. You give to God's cause. You minister reconciliation. You preach Christ to all. But see, encountering the presence of God changes us because it confronts us. It makes our sin unavoidable. Have you ever experienced the sting and the stench of your sin? Isaiah says at the end of verse 5, Behold, you were angry. And we sin. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name. Who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Second, lament. Longing, longing for the presence of God, lament, lament, our lamentable condition. Anyone can come to the Lord, anyone, but no one can come and remain ignorant of sin. There's a moral requirement for being in the presence of God. God welcomes those who welcome him. He gladly meets with those who desire his righteousness. But any honest person persisting in their sin, can see the conflict. The second part of verse 5 says, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. Now why not say, we sinned, and you were angered. We sinned, you got angry. Now it says, you were angered, and we sinned. Because the point is not to highlight God's anger, but our persistence in offending him It says, in our sins, we have been a long time. In other words, God has made it plain to us a life that he honors and a life that he rejects. We know what warrants his anger, and yet we chose rejection anyway. And so Isaiah proceeds to give us one of the most robust depictions of sin in all the Bible. And sin is not just bad behavior. It's a total rejection of the way God designed the abundant life. So what does sin produce? Well, first we see that sin makes us dangerously impure. To become like one who is unclean is to essentially say, you should beware being around me. I just might make a mess of your life. In fact, lepers, in in Isaiah's day, lepers were uh, people with contagious, untreatable skin diseases. They were pushed to the margins of society, lest you become infected by them. People didn't want to be around them. And the point is that sin sin is never as innocent and isolated as you think. Sin makes relationships with others volatile, and it makes a relationship with God impossible. But listen, the, the church must be a place where people can come to be cleansed from their sin. But sometimes, even in the church, people want to persist in sin. And being in the church can even lead you to think that you're all right. It's not that bad. Look at where I am. But sin is like cancer. There are many types of cancer, and some types are more aggressive or need more immediate care than others. But also, like cancer, all sin is serious. And when left unchecked, results in death. One such set of sins that often goes unchecked in the church is gossip and flattery. Someone once said that gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face, and flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. And when that is allowed to persist long enough, it undermines the relational integrity and hinders our gospel witness. Such talk communicates that we don't handle conflict well because we don't tell the truth. And we don't love others well because we don't seek their good. And so we should never downplay the impurity and severity of sin. Second, our sin produces filthy deeds, he says. It's like filthy rags. Now, I want you to to keep in mind that we're not talking about life in the Spirit here. As as believers, we should take courage that God produces righteousness in us. The righteous shall live by faith. That means he works. We wait. Remember? But those who walk according to their own deeds tend to think they're doing good. I mean, religious people tend to think this way. They think they are better off than they actually are, especially when compared with other people. But even the religious life is lived according to the flesh. When people like this get asked, if if you were to die tonight, why would God let you into heaven? They answer with a list of reasons that justify their own merit. They completely miss Moses' point when he says, God, if your presence is not with us, then we don't want to go. Because the only thing that gives us a whiff of holiness is your presence with us. Now the righteous deeds, these righteous deeds are are like what Paul talks about in Philippians 3 when he says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Three, we see our, our sin leaves us depleted and directionless. Psalm one teaches that the, the blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Those who are firm in faith are rooted and grounded in the Lord, they hold fast to him, they persevere. But the wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Those who seek life apart from God think that they're strong, think that they're free. But we're all the same. We are all the same. Apart from God, we all serve the desires of the flesh. Don't you know that about yourself? You know this, right? You, you picked up on this as you experienced life. You, 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 you feed the desires of your flesh. All of us, we take ourselves to be more rational and measured than we actually are. But when faced with something we want, even if we know it's bad for us, who doesn't start justifying to their own conscience why they need it? I mean, I was just walking by the gas station the other day thinking, I want a Mountain Dew. No, I don't need a Mountain Dew. I just had another drink. I didn't need... No, it's but it's not that. It wouldn't be that bad. Who doesn't do these things with all kinds of things? We're constantly trying to feed our flesh, our desires. They're there. They'll rise up. They'll talk to you. James tells us that when we're enticed by our desires, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so Isaiah sees here that the life of sin, it's pervasive, it's defiled, it's destructive, it's deceitful, it's disinterested in God, it's isolated from God, and it's brief. Sinful people waste away because we won't turn to God. And because we won't turn to God, he hides his face from us what can be done? What are we to do? The only chance we have is to appeal to God. It's a call for him to work while we patiently wait. It's a call for God to descend and to ask him to rouse our hearts to respond. Thank God he actually cares about his places of worship. Thank God he actually cares about meeting with his people. And so Isaiah says to God, your people are separated from you and there's nothing we can do about it. Will it stay like this forever? And so in verse eight, continue. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We all... We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? So we've said longing, lament love our cry for god's unrestrained love god give us in full the fullness of your love don't don't hold back at all when the people are to return from exile the, the place and this is you know isaiah's forecasting out here that the, the places of worship he envisions are in ruin it's to become a reality but it, but it could also be a parable for the condition Of sinful hearts. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. God, would you work? Would the hands of the potter come and change our malformed condition? We need an intervention. We need your help. We need rescue. We recognize our sinful condition. We are not who we thought we were. But praise God that you are exactly who you have declared yourself to be. You are the God of mercy. You come to those who humble themselves and admit their need. You have compassion for the wayward son who comes home. We know that you do not pardon the guilty and we have a debt too great for us to pay. We chose sin, and it gave birth to death. Now our backs are up against the wall. We need a miracle. We need your saving hand. Will you keep silent and afflict us? Will you restrain your love from us? Lord, we deserve your anger and judgment. Will you stay angry with us forever? You want to know what tears the heavens? And quakes the mountains? You want to know how God makes known his name and causes the nations to tremble? Matthew records in his gospel that over 2,000 years ago, an angel appeared to a Jewish man named Joseph in a dream and said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. God with us. When people cry out in repentance and ask for mercy, God comes down. He comes with unrestrained love. He says, I will tear open the heavens and shake the mountains to come to you. He says, your life bore sin, which gives way to death, but I will take the guilt of sin upon myself through my son so that you may have life by his blood. I will take your place. I will take death upon myself. Today, we, as, as we've already been talking about, we are celebrating baptisms. And to be baptized is to declare that God has taken up resonance with you. He lives in you. When you are dipped in the waters, you are symbolically putting sin to death. And when you are lifted out, It's like you're raised to new life with Christ. Baptism doesn't save you, but it gives testimony to the truth that in Christ, God has. If you have never been baptized before, what keeps you from this life? You need the touch of God to intervene in your life. And he's both willing and able to save you. Church, I'd like to bow bow your heads in, in prayer. Church, God has not run out of ways to save you. And he will not hide his face from us forever. He will shine his face upon you so that you will shine in his righteousness brighter than the sun. Heavenly Father, we long for your presence with us. We lament our sin. But we know that in Christ, we are not without hope. That in Christ, you cleanse us, you heal us you save us. You will work for those who wait for you. Teach us to walk in your ways and to remember your good works. Renew us by your love, we pray. In Jesus' name.